Welcome to Bicycle Retail Radio, the bicycle industry podcast that brings retailers, vendors, advocates, and thought leaders to the mic for honest discussions about the latest issues facing retailers while taking an in-depth look at the person within the profession. All right, welcome. All right, this is the MBDA News Hour, co-hosted with our friends from Human Powered Solutions. Today, Rochelle and I are joined by micromobility experts, Jay Townley, Mike Fritz, and Fred Clements. I'm MBDA president, Heather Mason. The team at Human Powered Solutions has over 245 years of experience, considered the data wizards. Their monthly newsletter, The Micromobility Reporter, is a dynamic resource for the industry featuring timely news and in-depth analysis about the latest in human-powered transportation, including bicycles, e-bicycles, e-scooters, and rideshare. Included is a focus on supply chain issues, technology, and both business and consumer trends that drive the marketplace. So our monthly news feature will focus on the articles contained within this report, getting a more in-depth view and firsthand seat with the experts. I'm personally really excited about this. If you're listening and you want to sign up to receive the email version of this resource, visit humanpoweredsolutions.com. All right, let's dive in. So welcome, Jay, Mike, and Fred. Thank you so much for joining us and for being here to kick off, since this is our first news episode, we were hoping that you guys might give us a quick bio on your background in the industry. Since I'm the oldest, I'll start. <laughs> Thank you, Rochelle. This is Jay Townley. I started in a bike shop in 1957, and I can you know, paraphrase that quickly. I was a terrible wrench. I was much better at selling, and that's where I gravitated. The folks I work for, Hazel Park Cycle Center, Howard Hawkins and Art Engstrom, went on to found the Park Tool Company, which means they were a lot smarter than I was. But my working for them through junior high school, high school, a couple of years of college, ended up with a job at the Schwinn Bicycle Company that I was with Schwinn for 24 years. It's where Mike and I met and worked. After I got into consulting, is actually I'd known Fred, but primarily met Fred when he was the executive director of the NBDA, newly minted. I might add. So my association with the National Bicycle Dealers Association goes back to working for Schwinn on dealer programs. And at the time I was involved, Schwinn was going to at least three NBDA shows a year. And at one point, and that included what Cabda was doing. So at one point, the dealers were actually the predominant show producers in the industry. And this would go back to the bike boom in the 80s. Anyway, my career encompasses that period of time. I've stayed continually in the business since I left Schwinn in 1990. I won't go into all of the things that I've touched on and done, but I'm very happy to be involved with Human Powered Solutions, with Mr. Fritz and a number of our senior associates, and with the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Jay, it's been so great to have you part of the association, and your your knowledge and your background is widely renowned, and it's just wonderful to do so many great things with you. Mike, would you give us just a little bit on your background? Sure. I'm the engineer in the group. I've got an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering from Marquette University, and I have a master's in engineering management from Northwestern University, so I'm I'm kind of the technical guy. My title with Human Powered Solutions is Chief Technology Officer. I, too, have been in the bicycle industry my entire professional life. My dad worked for Schwinn when I was born. I joined Schwinn as a machine design engineer on June 1st, 19, 
73, which means I'm coming up on my 50th anniversary. I started at Schwinn as a machine design engineer. I left in 1990 the, when the handwriting was on the wall that uh, the Schwinn as we knew it was coming to an end. During my tenure at Schwinn, I was involved in product safety. That's how Jay and I came to work together most closely initially. I also had roles in terms of product design and development for both bicycles and fitness equipment. When I left Schwinn in 1990, I was director of engineering. I went from Schwinn to a number of different bicycle companies. I've got tenure with Huffy Bikes, Brunswick Bicycles, Pacific Cycles, working in engineering management positions for those companies. In the late 1990s, I was hired by Lee Iacocca after he resigned from Chrysler. He wanted to start an electric vehicle company, and Mr. Iacocca was a bright man. He started small with uh, electric two-wheelers. He hired me as his vice president of product development. That was my uh, introduction into electric bikes, and I've been doing e-bikes ever since. So that's a little over 25 years now focused on uh, electric bicycles. So I've got a lot of experience in that field. I worked for several different e-bike companies. I was chief technology officer for a propulsion system company for a period of time, essentially up to my eyeballs in the technology that makes e-bikes work. I've Of late, I've got a specific interest in battery safety. We had issues with lithium-ion batteries way back in the early 2000s. That clearly became an issue. It's a big concern of mine. I'm very nervous that the issues that we're currently seeing in, in New York City are going to have an adverse effect on the future of our industry. So I'm doing everything that I can to educate, inform, instruct, advise our constituency relative to how to deal with lithium-ion battery energy storage devices safely giving advice not only to dealers through the NBDA, but also to consumers to make sure that our constituency has a, a very positive experience with our products because it's truly one of the most wonderful technological developments in the world in, in recent years, and, and we can't do anything to hinder its proliferation in the future. And again, much like Jay, I very much enjoy our association with the NBDA we work very well together. In my particular instance, I bring the technology to the table and they help me spread the word. So it's been a very productive and a very satisfying experience. On both sides, we are very happy to work with Mike on all fronts, especially educating our members like we have on e-bike lithium-ion battery safety and all of the resources that we have available on that. So thank you, Mike. Thank you. And last but definitely not least, I would ask Fred, would you mind introducing yourself to our members? Sure. My background is actually journalism, including a stint as a El Segundo Herald editor, you know, major journalism that was. But so newspapers and magazines until 1988, I joined Cyclist Magazine as an editor and I was a cycling enthusiast and that made sense. But it went bankrupt in about a year. And Steve Reddy was the founder and director of Interbike, the trade show for many years. And he hired me in 1989 to be the executive director of the NBDA, and I stayed until 2017 doing executive director stuff. I spent maybe six months at Interbike in a retail relations role, and now I'm helping Jay and Mike out with the micro mobility reporter sort of editing and that kind of work, distributing that. So that's me. It's so great to have each one of you here. And so listeners, we have the experts here. We wanted to do a deep dive on this first episode because we want you to know that we have assembled the experts in the field to talk about the issues each month and bring forward all the relevant information. So you're best equipped to move forward 
regardless if you're a retailer, a supplier, a rider, an advocate, the information within this episode is going to be applicable to all. So without further ado, I want to jump into the February 2023 issue that just came out. I want to start right at the top. The opening article was titled, It Is Our Problem. It's a huge catchy phrase, catches people right off guard. And the article talks about the history of Schwinn and goes into Human Powered Solutions support of UL 2849 at the conclusion of it. Would you guys dive a little bit deeper into this opening article? Sure. I'll lead off and then uh, hand it off to Mike and Fred. The title of the article goes with something that Mike has been saying to me and probably to you, Heather, as well, but to people we're working with for months. And that is that the rest of the industry seems to be saying it's not our problem. And we ran into that more and more. So putting this article together was kind of looking at everything that occurred over the last six months, particularly relative to UL 2849, the complete e-bike system standard developed by UL. And Harking back, and it turns out, and Mike can fill you in a little more detail here, but we were both thinking along the same lines while he was out in California last week, and I wrote the article, and then we didn't get back together until after the article published, but we were both thinking about exactly what I start out the article explaining, that 54 years ago, when it was obvious that the industry was going to be regulated by the then brand new Consumer Product Safety Commission, and it was going to be empowered by the Consumer Product Safety Act, Frank V. Schwinn, the third generation president of the Schwinn Bicycle Company, who cared very much about his dealers, basically got his team together and said, look, we got the high ground. We're the superior standard in the industry. And in fact, at that time, we had left the industry association. Frank had taken us out and away from BMA, the Bicycle Manufacturers Association, in a dispute essentially over promoting mass merchant bikes over dealer quality bikes at the time. Now, this is ancient history, but we were not a member of the association. We still cooperated in advocacy. We stayed in touch. It was a different industry. There were six, I think, seven domestic manufacturers at that point in time. But Frank called his team together and he said, look, we're going to do what we can to not impose anything we do on anybody. We want good, safe standards for consumers. And this was back in the day, I will tell you, before the bike boom in 1971, when he couldn't handle it anymore, Frank V. Schwinn answered every consumer letter that came to Schwinn, every one of them. It was a personal response from Frank and from the president of the company. During the bike boom era of 71 to 74, there was just so much volume, he couldn't handle it. We actually had to hire people to help go through the mail and help him to deal with the responses from consumers. But This was at the point before the regulation was codified and promulgated in 1975 when we had to make a decision of what we were going to do. We were outside the industry. We could have stood away. We just could have stood completely away from all of this and let them fight it out because we realized our standards were high enough that we wouldn't have any problems with anything they'd come up with. But Frank's view was, no, it's our problem. We're all going to be looked at the same. And I remember this distinctly because I was in a meeting. I was the young manager that prior to this had been sent to work with the Bureau of Product Safety, which was the predecessor agency in the Food and Drug Administration, to the Consumer Product Safety Commission. And I was the guy also that they sent around to the state legislatures to 
job on them relative to safety standards for bikes and to work with them. Mm-hmm. So I remember distinctly one of the senior managers, I think over in the finance department, one of the vice presidents of the company said, Frank, that's not our problem. And Frank V. Schwinn looked at him and said, it is our problem because in the minds of the consumers, they view all of us the same. It doesn't matter if it's a Sears bike. By the way, nobody knows who Sears is anymore, but that was the big retailer of bicycles in the day, the big mass merchant. They don't care if it's a Sears bike that's bought in a carton or a Schwinn bike. They look at us all the same. They don't know. And we've got to make sure that we provide the best possible standards for the American public so that we're all looked at as providing the best level of safety for American consumers. So that was what my thinking was in putting this together and making it clear that you got to stand up for something. In today's marketplace, it's extremely important that I believe personally that we have to make sure that we are looking to the safety of consumers. So the article explains that. And Heather, you know, the NBDA has done a wonderful job of Supporting UL 2849, which is well worth supporting. This is a complete electric bicycle system standard. But the industry, in my personal view, and I believe in the human powered solutions view, has not done enough, has not stood up and said, this is not an import problem. This is not a de minimis problem or bicycles coming in under the de minimis rule. This is a national bicycle problem that we have to deal with, and we have to deal with it the best way possible and get the best people together to get it done. Now, with that said, Michael, you were out in California doing something totally different, and you told me after the article appeared that you had a very similar thought relative to that attitude and view that Frank V. Schwinn had about consumer safety. Yes, Jay, it's amazing. Great minds run in the same gutter, apparently. What struck me was... The similarities or the parallels, if you will, to the situation we're in today and the situation that the industry was in back in the early 70s, late 60s and early 70s. In the late 60s and early 70s, we were in the midst of a bicycle boom. Uh, Domestic production was predominant, but domestic production was not adequate to fill the demand. So much like we're seeing today, there were a lot of less than honorable importers, if you will, it was bringing in a lot of garbage from overseas suppliers that simply were not up to the task of safely transporting kids and adults on bicycles in the U.S. And there were many accidents, many injuries associated with poor quality bikes failing in the field. And and in that particular instance, the failures were primarily metallurgical, which is what attracted me to it, you know, as the engineer in the group. We used to look at photographs of bikes that had literally fallen apart while being used under foreseeable conditions because they were just garbage. And and that was basically the impetus that got what was then, as Jay alluded, the Food and Drug Administration and then subsequently the CPSC involved in looking very closely at bicycles and the product safety associated with bicycles. And they found it was sorely lacking. But again, it was a relatively small segment of the bicycles that were entering into the marketplace but they were injuring children. And that got the attention of CPSC. And CPSC, once it was formalized and became an independent agency, set bicycles as their number one target for regulation to ensure the safety of the product we sold. And initially, the industry freaked. I mean, it was like, oh, my God, you're going to put us out of business. And with Schwinn's leadership, you know, Frank B. Schwinn's leadership and the leadership of Jay Townley, who led the charge from Schwinn and Frank Berlando, our historically excellent vice president of engineering, we got deeply involved. We helped hammer out a workable solution 
that guaranteed the safety of the products and everything from, I remember it like it was yesterday, May 11th, 1976 was the day that the bicycle standard went into effect in the United States. And from that point forward, the incidence of catastrophic failures of bicycles in the United States went nearly to zero because everybody got on board. Everybody made sure that their product complied. And anything that didn't comply that was attempted to be brought in was stopped at the port because it didn't comply with the CPSC regulation for mechanical integrity. Flash forward to 2022, 2021. All of a sudden, we're in a similar scenario, although now instead of seeing catastrophic mechanical failures, we're seeing catastrophic battery failures that are causing fires and loss of life and significant property damage. When we look closely at this, we see that, in fact, it is substandard product that's coming in from overseas. You know, again, I've been studying this for years. I'm convinced that lithium-ion battery packs, when properly designed, manufactured, and cared for, are perfectly safe for their intended use. But that's not the scene. That's not what's happening. That's not what the experience is, is right now because of these issues primarily in New York City. They're substandard products. They're being ridden hard and they're failing and it's causing a problem. Now, all of a sudden, the government's involved again because people are being injured by bicycles and they're paying attention to it. Unlike the late 60s, we already have a standard. And Jay mentioned that UL developed the standard. UL didn't develop the standard. UL basically oversaw the development of the standard. The standard was developed by the industry. Representatives from key brands in the United States formed a working group that worked out all of the details of UL 2849. And it was actually promulgated. When was it, Jay? I believe it was 2020? January of 2020. Okay, so we have a standard. It's voluntary, but as a voluntary standard, obviously the importers don't have to worry about it. Then there's the issue of the de minimis rule. We won't get into that for the time being, but the point is is we're hurting people. Our industry is hurting people. And again, as Jay pointed out, as Frank V. Schwinn pointed out, there's no distinction between brands when you're talking about a battery fire. It's an e-bike. The e-bike is causing the fire. The e-bike battery is causing the fire. The e-bike battery caused the fire in which the young girl was killed. So people are paying attention again, and regulatory agencies are paying attention again. And now we already have a standard, and it's a standard that the industry participated in its development. Now all we need to do is comply with the standard. And if we're not going to comply with the standard voluntarily, guess what? The government's going to step in and they're going to say, okay, it's mandatory. And I'm just struck by the similarities between what we're experiencing now and what we're experiencing then. The industry, again, is going like, oh, my God, you're going to put us out of business. Regulation didn't put us out of business in 1970, and it's not going to put us out of business in 2023, okay? But it is going to protect our consumers. You're speaking of the CPSC and enforcing standards, standards that already exist. The UL2849, which we've talked a lot about, has just been released in a CPSC letter that went out in December of 2022, urging companies to comply with the UL standards. What do you think? we can expect next after this letter has come out? I think from the standpoint of the letter, great question, by the way, for people following this closely, the December 19th letter that was issued by the commission used slightly different language than what they did back in 2018 with hoverboards. And the difference was that this time around, they said, we urge, we urge. They used that that term twice. We urge the industry, we urge importers. Keeping in mind, sadly, that U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission is now on a leash from the Commerce Committee that's in the U.S. House of Representatives in Congress. So 
that's a little garbled. <laughs> to make that make sense, back in the Reagan administrations, CPSC lost a lot of its legislative power and a lot of its regulatory power. And part of what was done is a deal was struck, if you will, in legislative language that CPSC now has to go back to the Commerce Department of the House to basically get permission to do its job of regulating. Back in the time when Mike and I first got involved with them and when the bike reg was first promulgated, they had absolute authority. They was unilateral. They did not have to go back to the Congress. So segue to the present, and you've got a CPSC that the bike industry has said publicly uh, doesn't have any teeth. It has no bite to it. We've heard this from attorneys representing the trade, the industry, from the sporting goods industry. However, one of the things that we wrote about in the companion article this month was what the fitness company that is Peloton, Peloton. I blanked on the name. Peloton just signed off on a $19 million penalty for not reporting the substantial hazard that included the death of children. This, to me, shows clearly that if the commission gets everything aligned, if there's a death of a child, they can get to the Commerce Committee and get permission to go ahead and, and do what they did, which is they recalled the violative product, which are treadmills in this case, not bicycles. And they also went back and said, fine, you want to ignore us? We're going to go after you for violating the Section 15B of the Consumer Product Safety Act. You didn't report a substantial hazard after you had, and I can't uh, remember the number, Mike, but I think it was hundreds of complaints. They certainly had deaths of children. They did not report it. And the commission came back and not only did a, a ban and recall, they fined them $19 million. Now, that's not a lot of money to billion-dollar corporations and unicorns. But to people in the bike business, that's a lot of bread. And I'm sure to Peloton, that was a lot of money. So my point being that the commission still has teeth. It still can bite. To answer your question, Rochelle, I think the next thing is how the commission goes from urging. And what are the next tools? Are they going to be a ban like they did with hoverboards? Is it going to be a ban and recall? They've got those tools available to them. And if there's wrongful death out there, if there's death that should not have occurred, no matter at what level or what age group, the commission certainly has the ability to fine and fine a company at very high levels. So, Jay, Jay I want to just step in here for a second because there's been a lot of people pushing back and people, a lot of brands, I've seen a lot of press that the you know certifying to or listing to UL2849 is going to put a lot of brands out of business or it's going to outprice our products for Jay Fred or, or Mike I know you've done research on this what are your findings say is this the case are brands going to be put out of business are our products going to be outpriced I would start with rubbish that <laughs> is pure rubbish and Mike can comment on this certainly and I just I just came off of a spiel so I'll let Mike take it for here and then I'll add to what he said but that is totally untrue. It's not going to happen. And again, I'll draw, of course, uh, a comparison to the, the scenario we found ourselves in in, in the early 1970s. Um, so the CPSC standard, as it was originally written, was primarily a mechanical standard. It was, it was a mechanical and a performance standard. And the mechanical aspects of it basically spoke to the mechanical integrity of the structure. A frame has to uh, absorb so much energy. A, a front fork has to absorb so much energy without failing. There were impact tests. There were tests to check handlebar step strength, et cetera, et cetera. 
Well, when it became obvious that that was going to become law, what occurred was is all of the suppliers of those components, knowing that if they wanted to participate in, or if they wanted to be installed on bicycles sold in the U.S. marketplace, their products had to conform to the requirements. So all of the suppliers then engineered or re-engineered their product if it was necessary and then tested it to the CPS standards for their specific component and then came to manufacturers such as Schwinn and said, all of my handlebar stems pass the CPSC requirements. And we actually had at Schwinn, we had a supplier's agreement. And the supplier's agreement, once the CPSC standard was promulgated, the supplier's agreement had a clause in there that said your products must conform to CPSC. Well, the suppliers did. They fell in, in line and they, they re-engineered the product if it was necessary and they supplied us with good components. I see a similar situation happening here. In my current role, I interface with a lot of propulsion system component companies. As I mentioned earlier, I was chief technology officer for a propulsion system component company. And what they will do, and, and I know this is happening for a fact, I've spoken to battery pack companies that are very conversant with the requirements of 2271, UL 2271, which is the battery segment of 2849, and they're planning on re-engineering and remanufacturing their products so that they conform. So when the industry says, you know, there's no way if we're going to mix and match components on our bikes, we have to test each and every combination, all of the components they're in. Well, if they're buying a compliant charger and they're buying a compliant battery pack and they're buying a compliant motor controller and a compliant motor, yada, 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 they're essentially 90% of the way there. In other words, if the supplier can prove, can supply certification to the effect that it conforms to the requirements of 2849, then all the manufacturer needs to do is test the system for uh, compatibility. So they don't have to go back and redo the testing on all of the components. Once UL is satisfied that the tests have been performed and the piece conformed, complies, all you need to do is test the compatibility, the integration, if you will, of that combination of, of components. So people are saying, oh, we're going to have to buy a complete Bosch system because Bosch is the only totally certified assembly. Well, the Bosch system is certified as an assembly, but if they're going to buy a motor from one company and a controller from another, but they're all compliant components, all they need to certify or test is the integration of those components. So it's going to be significantly less burdensome than what everybody's making it out to be. And it's going to be significantly less expensive than what everybody's making it out to be. And again, it's a parallel to what happened back in the 70s. We started buying compliant components, put them on our bike, and then we tested our bike and to make sure that all of the components integrated well and the end product was compliant with the requirement. It's not that big a deal. Well, and cost-wise, Fred, is there something you wanted to add to this? I do have something to add here about the, the industry uh, response to some of this because I lived through it with the all-terrain vehicles in the mid-80s in the motorcycle ah. industry. I'd like to tell that story once you have a chance to weigh in. Okay, here. well, I'll make, I'll make this quick because in the recent article that published in Brain in the February 2023 issue, on page 19, there's an article titled, Narrow or Wide? Question mark Industry Splits on Approach to UL Standards. And I'm asked and quoted, by Steve Frothinghammer wrote the article as stating that the total cost for a manufacturer to get certification, to test and certify to UL 2849, total cost is $25,000. Now, that's the total cost, as Mike said, if nothing, nothing, if none of the five or multiple components have been tested before and are certified before. That's if you're starting from scratch, greenfield, everything's got to be tested and certified. The $25,000 can be greatly reduced if the, as Mike said, if the motor has been tested, if the battery's been tested. However, let's take the 25,000 
in the article, the example that's used is now let's amortize that over 2,000 bicycles that are produced. That's $12.50 per bike amortized. 2,000 is a very small number. So you really have to look at 25,000 and divide that by a more realistic number, even doubling that to to 5,000 products or SKUs within a family that's using that same system greatly reduces that per unit cost. The point is that Mike and I have both been in operations. We've both been involved in manufacturing product. We still are because we work with four clients getting their products manufactured, primarily China, but also Taiwan. And so when you amortize the cost of UL2849 across the number of products using that system, it's greatly reduced. And it's certainly at even even $12.50 a unit is way less than what the brand was paying three, four, and five months ago just for freight. So the costs have shifted enormously, and it'll be amortized into a number of units. Now, that also goes nicely, I think, Fred, with what you're about to say, what you experienced in the motorcycle side or the the off-road side. Right. I was uh, editor of a trade magazine in the motorcycle industry in the mid-80s. That was the time where the Honda introduced it earlier than that, but the all-terrain cycle, it was called. It was a three-wheel all-terrain vehicle with big fat tires. They were affordable, heavily marketed to children because they're so fun. And we in the industry, we weren't doing anything intentionally wrong, but all of a sudden, these injury reports and death reports started surfacing. And I was almost the worst offender. These people are crazy. They're going to actually regulate these products. I mean, we have professional racing. These are not unsafe products. What's wrong with you people? But then I realized over time when they did ban the three-wheel all-terrain cycle that I was too close to it. I was myopic. I was within the industry. I was an insider looking at my own problems, not the consumer first. I didn't see it. And it took me some years later to realize I was short-sighted. And that's I, I look at our position as an industry here with e-bikes. The decisions are being made now that will affect the future. This is the opportunity to get it right. It's not too late now to do the right thing. And you know, $12.50 a bicycle is nothing compared to a complete ban. And that's what happened with all-terrain cycles. And it cost retailers and the supply side, a lot of money and yeah. injured a lot of people. And but the reluctance to engage was on the industries. And it, I, I take some of the blame because I wrote a lot about this. <laughs> well, Fred, I'm, I'm feeling what you're saying right now because I just came off one of our P2 meetings with several retailers and we're talking about what the future of retail is. And those conversations are e-bikes. It's centered around e-bikes. E-bikes make up a majority of the bicycle retailers' sales right now. It's a really important category. So as past NBDA president, what actions should retailers be taking right now, Fred? You know, I think certainly follow the safety protocols and unsafe handling. I think, you know, I, I back to my putting my NBDA hat on almost is you can't be in the wilderness on this. You have to join your associations, whether it's people for bikes or NBDA, not just because, okay, they're going to do exactly what I want. But as a member of associations, you have a chance to engage and affect the agenda and the approach they take. They listen to members more than they do non-members. It's a cheap buy to get engaged in this kind of thing. Otherwise, it'll happen without your knowledge or permission. 
And it's just going to happen. Once the government gets hold of it or the trade is not doing something in your best interest, I would encourage everyone to engage. And one of the things that the motorcycle industry ended up doing was set up a rather extensive rider training and safety program that was required for all trained vehicles. I think it was $100 million initially. I mean, so something like training, but get engaged, get involved. I wouldn't just sit back and say, oh, yeah, it'll work out because this is your time to get engaged and and affect that agenda. Can I make another quick comment on this? Back talking about the cost of compliance. It's no secret that e-bike batteries are catching fire and hurting people. I mean, what's happening in New York is is in the news all over the country. It's in the news all over the world. But And one of the things that I've been concerned about, one of the things that I've been trying to teach during the various presentations that I make is to dealers is you've got to be prepared for customers that come into your store asking about this. You have to be credible. You have to give them a credible explanation as to why their bike's not going to catch on fire like they are in New York. So what I try to do is I explain a little bit of background behind what's going on. But the point I want to make, though, is is if we do embrace certification and brands do prove compliance with the UL requirements, then imagine how easily a dealer can overcome those objections when the customer comes in the store saying, why should I buy this? It's going to burn my house down. It's UL certified. Oh, okay. That's fine. Now, from from my perspective, and I'm an engineer, not a marketing guy, but that's got to be worth a whole lot of advertising dollars in terms of taking the message forward that our bikes are safe and they're safe because they're proven safe by an accredited agency. The same agency that says your your toaster and your refrigerator and your television set are all safe is now saying your e-bike is safe. You can have confidence in this product. You can buy it without worrying about a problem. And to me, that's invaluable. Yeah. And consumers are asking, I'm hearing that they're asking. And to Fred's point, what he touched on there, the education, I mean, we see the rad power, uh, the rad lawsuit, and we're we're selling these e-bikes and young kids, teenage kids are getting on them and they're not educated on how to safely ride these bikes. There's a whole lot here. I see Rochelle, you're trying to get a word in, so I'm going to pass it over to you. I just want to, in the interest of time, change over the subject just a little bit to the other article that was released in the newsletter this month. So it was about confronting shrinking sales after a pandemic-driven boom. So there were several unique news highlights in there that you guys put together from the industry that give us some indicator of where we are currently and where we could be headed. So if you will, let's just run through a few of those highlights and just give us a few of the facts, takeaways. We're just going to keep these to a couple minutes each, if you don't mind. So the first one that I kind of want to touch on is the highlight of Specialized, their news that they laid off 8% of their workforce. And uh, Specialized has taken a a lot of hits in the news in the month of January, up to and including the last day of the month. And I'm chuckling because the other big player, Trek, you never hear anything about. I'm not sure if that means that they are not having any problems or whether they just do a better job of not telling anybody what's going on. But that matches up with what we're seeing. I guess I would summarize it as the shakeout is occurring. Specialized joins some of the largest companies in the country. Microsoft, you go through Amazon, all of the top tier billion dollar companies are laying off 6%, 8%. There's a new, brand new article that that just posted today on the Brain website, REI cuts 8% of its headquarters workforce. So 
this is the second round for specialized. I think you also noticed yesterday they've specialized has owned a woman's specific clothing company. They just shut it down. It wasn't a matter of, of laying people off. They shut it down. So specialized is, is showing and, and saying publicly that they've got financial problems because of what's occurred during the COVID What's happening right now because of the reduction in sales, I don't know how much of their problem is inventory, but they don't make their bike product. They buy their product. And uh, Bob Markovicius heads that up, does an excellent job. But everybody in the trade uh, ran into the bullwhip effect, and we ended up with this huge overhang of inventory throughout the channels of trade, which, again, we don't hear about Trek. Perhaps they've done, they've done a better job of managing that. What we're seeing, Rochelle, is specialized, is suffering the pangs of reduced sales, of consumer lack of interest in buying and writing product at this point, and perhaps all of the other ramifications of the shakeout. Yeah, I mean, we're hearing from retailers that, you know, they're having their brands reach out to them with special incentives to take product. So we're we're sensing that the cash flow issues that retailers are experiencing, that brands are experiencing this too. And we did see a news article earlier or late last year, I'd say that Giant was, it, it symbolized that Giant may be in some sort of financial stress. And I saw in one of these bullet points here in this article that the Giant group bought a minority share in stages cycling. Can you give us your insight on that one, please? That one, and I've talked to Fred about this a little bit. I think the way you read that is that Giant bailed a customer out. Stages, now Giant owns a big factory that makes fitness equipment. It was built uh, originally for Schwinn Fitness Equipment, by the way. So we're quite familiar with it. And that is not a bicycle factory. It's a fitness factory. But Stages was a, was a is a big OEM customer. So I read that as exactly you know, Giant stepping in. They didn't want to lose an OEM customer. They didn't want to lose. I may be wrong, by the way. This is spe- speculation on my part. But I think with that, that read that as they bailed the Stages out. Now, in rough numbers, if you look at that, it was a $6 million purchase of stock for 32.5%. It was another 13.5 million or 13 million that went to bonds. They bought stages bonds, bonds issued by stages. Those bonds, by the way, are redeemable in stock. So in effect, Giant is set up to own that company if they ever redeem those bonds in stock, because at the same value of the 6 million that they bought, that would give them well over 90, 90% of the company. So the last one that we kind of want to highlight here was a really interesting one. What tracking one Walmart store's prices for years taught us about the economy. Would you mind touching on that? (laughs) Yeah, that one caught my eye for a number of reasons. As I point out in the article, of the hundreds of items that they had in this chart, which, by the way, was an NPR article, so it was very well done. They had a girl's bicycle. Now, they don't say much more than that. But the big deal here is that that product, when they first shopped it, August of 2019 was $68. The package price December of 2022 was $98. That's an increase of 44%. So my parting shot there is that this probably explains why we've seen the issues that Walmart and the mass merchants have gone through. We don't know This is, by the way, identified as a Kent bicycle. We don't know if that's a Kent-assembled bike in a South Carolina facility or that is an imported product because Kent does both for Walmart. But it's indicative. 
It's a 44% increase from the end of 2019 through the COVID period to last year in a mass merchant product, which is the low end of the business. And it's kind of indicative of why we're having a problem in the bike business, because all our products have increased in price for various reasons. And now we have to figure out what we're going to do to not only deal with an inventory build, but how we're going to take that product that has resulted in a 44% increase in a low-end girls' bicycle, translate through channels of trade, you know, what has occurred in different channels of trade, how are we going to entice the consumer to buy that product? What's going to occur in the shakeup? Well, what I'd like to do is kind of end it with some specific advice for our listeners. So I feel like we have three experts here who can really touch on where our industry, where our retailers, where our suppliers should be focused. So I'd like to ask specific questions to each one of you. Jay, I'll start with you just because you're you're here, you're on, you've been talking, you're warmed up. Right now, March 2023, for our listeners that are suppliers or brands, you know, what's your game plan? Where where should they be focused right now for best future course? I would say where they can focus on the circular economy, that is used product. And there's an excellent article in the February Brain issue, the current issue that's out that James Moore wrote, and he is an expert, in my opinion, on how you manage and bring used product into your bike shop and how you properly operate as a a retail merchant with used as one of your profit centers. I additionally would fall back on a past president of the NBDA, one Harley Phillips, a close personal friend of Fred Clements and myself. The Phillips rule, never, ever sell anything in your bike shop below the cost of doing business. And at Heather, as you know, with the P2 and working with the P2 groups, cost of doing business is a calculation, but it's something that's highly controllable or is controllable by the bike shop owner. So it's not cost of goods, it's the cost of doing business. And I think that should be the golden rule. A dealer should not be selling merchandise, no matter what kind of inventory they've got, below the cost of doing business. So those would be my two mantras going in. Where do you think our retailers that are listening should be focused regarding e-bikes? Where's their energy best spent? It's probably going to come as no surprise. Uh, you know, of late, my focus has been on battery safety. Before I get into that, I'm tickled to death to see where technology is leading us with respect to e-bike functionality and utility. Just being in the business is a wonderful thing. That said, focusing on, on battery safety, I've got a couple of recommendations. One is buy good product to sell to your customers. Buy product from reputable brands. When they become available, buy product that's been certified to applicable standards. Our hope, obviously, that UL 2849 is adopted by the industry and that all of our products are are certified to that standard before being sold to the dealers. Number three would be adopt practices and protocols in your shop for the safe handling, charging, and storing of those lithium-ion batteries. Even the best battery can fail, so we want to make sure that we're treating them properly, we're storing them properly, and we're taking proactive steps to ensure that if one does in fact fail, the ramifications of that failure are minimized. Okay. Number three is train your customers, primarily on battery safety, how they should use and maintain their batteries. We have published a number of guides that help you do that. Uh, we're currently in the process of updating those with additional information that we've learned in, in past months. So number three is make sure your customers know how to be safe with that lithium-ion battery technology. 
And number four is make sure you're, you're protected. Make sure your shop is protected. Ask your suppliers to show the fact that they've got uh, insurance policies from certified underwriters to make sure that if, in fact, something bad does happen, you're covered for any financial loss that you, you may encounter. So buy good product. Make sure that you're training it properly in your shop. Train your customers properly. Protect your store with insurance, both of your own purchase as well as certificates from the vendors that you buy from. Excellent feedback. I guess, Fred, I'm just going to put this one over to you. Overall focus for retailers this March of 2023, what would you suggest? I think it's important amidst all this change and evolution in the market and all, that for a retailer, I would urge get back to basics to make sure you have systems in place with an open to buy plan and that you manage inventory by category and you know, to borrow Jay's phrase, don't, don't do management by hope. Try to make it a more codified and regimented and structured plan, not seat of the pants. Now, a lot of dealers have moved beyond that now, but even then, it's so easy to buy that thing that's on sale in quantity because someone else has a full warehouse or something to do business on purpose and to be cautious, especially what we expect is going to be a difficult year, to just be prudent and don't let your enthusiasm for bicycles bleed over into your enthusiasm for buying. <laughs> I feel like over this last hour or so, we've gotten such a wealth of information. And Heather and I at the NBDA are optimistic that with education and with us keeping this, you know, hand on the horn of safety and regulation, that things will improve soon. But we can't help but feel like we're in a time of uncertainty and a time of change. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what the landscape is right now and how long you think it's going to take and what the next steps are? Oh, my. It's a time of uncertainty. And because of that, I think, number one, by the way, I agree with what everything Mike and, and Fred have added to what we need, what the dealer needs to do. So from a business planning standpoint, have a plan, but because the uncertainty, that plan has got to be flexible. So I would do a, a plan, but I would visit that plan. My ideal would be every two weeks, you look at the financials against the plan. How are you tracking financially against the plan? Be flexible, be willing to share with your staff, even if that's your family. You know, put a plan together and then share it. If it's the shop dog, share it. Make sure that you're talking to the people in your organization that can give you some feedback, even up to and including taking out a couple of really good customers for a beer, talking to customers about the plan and be prepared to change that plan. That's excellent advice, Jay. Well, I can't thank Mike, Jay, and Fred enough for coming on and sharing their wealth of knowledge with our listeners. Uh, this is going to be a monthly feature and really looking forward to just continue to do this together. You know, it's all about working together, you know, looking out for each other and keeping us all best informed. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bicycle Retail Radio. This podcast is designed specifically for the bicycle industry dedicated to strengthening our retailers and cycling community. If it is your first episode, we urge you to take the time and listen to our past episodes. Support the show by first subscribing. 
then share your favorite episode online with friends. You can go one step further and leave a review. It helps members of our industry find our podcast. Special thanks to NBDA Development Director Rochelle Scouten for editing and promotional graphics. Music provided by Joel Picard.